0: So Money, Episode 305. Ask Farnoosh.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoush Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoush herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
0: opportunities by starting your own business is one of the most empowering things you can do for yourself. However, it can also be overwhelming at times. The secret to getting more done isn't about finding more time, but rather finding the right tools. Our friends at FreshBooks couldn't agree more. FreshBooks has created an amazingly simple invoicing tool designed for small business owners who need to focus on their work, not their paperwork. Oh, and invoicing is only the start. FreshBooks lets you know in Instantly, when your client has viewed your invoice and even imports your expenses directly from your business checking account, get ready to say goodbye to searching for receipts when it comes to tax time. If you do have questions, just contact the award-winning FreshBooks support team and get help from real live humans. No phone tree, no let me escalate that, just helpful service at the drop of a hat. To try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, just go to freshbooks.com forward slash so money and enter so money in the how did you hear about us section we Welcome back to So Money, everyone. It is Friday, TGIF, and joining me for a special Ask Farnish episode is my friend. You know him. He's a friend of the show, Alan Moore. He is the founder of XY Planning Network and a certified financial planner, which is a uh, – by the way, XY Planning Network is a fee-only RIA. It's location-independent, so for those of you who, uh, you know uh, – don't want to necessarily find someone in your town, can't find someone in your town, check out XY Planning Network. Alan, you've been on the show before as a subject. I've picked your brain about money and now happy to have you back on for another round of Ask Farnoosh. How are you? Happy post-holidays.
1: Thanks so much, Farnoosh. It's a pleasure to be on and and happy holidays to you as well.
0: How was your Thanksgiving?
1: It was wonderful. It was relaxing, which is always, uh, always the goal, so...
0: What do you find this time of year is what people get really antsy about financially? What do you what's top of mind right now? Besides, of course, how to score the best uh, <laughs> shopping deals.
1: Black Friday deals are always are, are always fun. Um, I, I see taxes really being the stressor around holiday season because you're kind of running up on these. Like, what are the deadlines? Can I still contribute to an IRA? Can I not? What do I need to do? Um, but ultimately what ends up happening is really from Thanksgiving to Christmas people just kind of shut down uh, and just turn it off and and they turn and they want to turn it back on at the beginning of the year which sometimes is too late to make some decisions so it's always a weird the end of the year is always a really weird time for financial yeah. planners
0: it, it's it's weird for me sometimes too I I, I, I I am sometimes one of those people that tries to shut down because there's just so much going on and the thought of you know that, that taxes are looming, and if you own your own business, you have to, um, you know, file actually earlier than most people. So if if there is like an extra couple hours to myself, I try to just kind of do a, at least lay the foundation, the overlay for my my taxes. So I kind of know at least what the categories are that I have to go back and fill as far as expenses, and every little bit goes a very long way once the new year rolls around because. Once it's the new year, you got other priorities, and money sometimes uh, still absolutely. gets to the end of that list. And so, we have a number of questions today, Alan. We've got questions about, um, you know, student loans, obviously retirement, and so excited to dive into these with you. The, f- the first question we have is from Chow. This person says, I am married. My husband was previously married and has joint student loans with his ex. He pays roughly now $200 monthly toward the loan. And I believe that he once told me it was $30,000 in total, but I'm not sure if that was just his part or both or you know, combination. Because at some point in the past, they did refinance the student loans together. How does he get out of this student loan and break away? She says, I can help him pay off his loans, but I don't want the risk of having to pay off hers, the ex-wife, on top. How does he get out of this loan mess, essentially? Thanks so much. You know, it's nice to think that you could just get out of your student loans if that were only the case. I think that this is a a road that he is going to have to stay on with his ex-wife for some time until this is reconciled. And because they refinanced jointly, it is now both of their responsibilities and I think that the best that really as the wife that she can do now is to continue talking to him about it and and not interfere financially or otherwise and just uh you know make sure that he is doing what he has to do to get out of this appropriately as opposed to dodging it right <laughs>
1: Yeah, student loans in divorce are really tricky. Uh, they, they have not written a lot of rules to make it possible to split student loans. So I think that's the important part is when anytime the, the student loan is going to be tied to the student uh, because their name is going to be associated with it. It sounds like since these were refinanced, it's possible these are private loans. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you have private loans and publicly backed loans. Private loans, you may actually be able to refinance your half. And basically split these into two loans. So let's say there's $30,000 in loans. They could possibly go in together, refinance individually. So they each have 15000 so that Um, you know, Chow's husband can and and Chow and and the husband can pay off their portion of loans without having to worry about what the ex-wife is doing with her portion. Right. Um, that is possible, and there are some new companies that have come out, uh, like Common Bond, SoFi, uh, that may be able to facilitate that. So there may be some possibilities to at least separate them, so you know how much are your loans and how much you get to deal with, and once they're paid off, they're off. Uh, if these are public loans and they're all tied up together, uh, it's basically impossible to refinance um, your half out of them. But what you could do is pull the money together, go and basically make one big payment, probably with the help of an attorney. Be sure the, the ex-wife signs something mm-hmm. saying, you know, I am relieving you of, of your responsibility on the other half of these, uh, you know, subsequent to the divorce or whatnot. So there, there are probably some ways to to handle sure.
0: this. Yeah, that's what I was going to suggest, too, is if they can't go with a lender route to refinance. Equally or somehow divvy it up, uh, legally. They could do that on their own, essentially with a lawyer, and both parties have to be in agreement that, you know, I'm going to take care of 50% or 60%, and you're going to take care of the rest. And, uh, but it's a process. And I think this is, as as far as the, uh, the wife, I think the most she can do, the best she can do is make a suggestion and say that you heard this Agreed. on the So Money podcast. <laughs> Throw me under the bus. Okay. Just tell them, <laughs> tell them it was my idea and Alan's idea. And so you can kind of, uh, you know, uh, avoid any awkwardness there. But uh, good luck. And I'm glad you're asking this question. It's important for spouses to be involved to some extent, to at least be in the know of what's happening. And I know with marrying for the second time, there's a lot of, uh, quote unquote, baggage that can come from the previous marriage that will impact your new life together. So it's important to to really be on top of it. Meg says, hey, Farnoosh, uh, here we go, Alan, question about taxes, she says, are. yeah, my husband and I got married this July. And so, well, congratulations, newlyweds still. She says, my yeah, husband. Congratulations, Meg. Yeah, so, so great. Her husband is self employed. He's a musician. He has variable income and expenses. She says, I work a pretty reliable salary job. We've each always filed our own taxes separately. And I'm wondering, how do we know which is the best way to move forward to file? Is there an estimator that can show us pros and cons or should we talk to someone? Well, I will say just really quickly, Meg, you know, uh, my husband and I are kind of in a similar situation where I have very sporadic income, like your husband, the musician, I because I'm self-employed. I also don't have a consistent paycheck and my husband has a very consistent paycheck. Which is uh, which is nice for the relationship. At least there's some certainty <laughs> financially. But <laughs> when it came time to figuring out our taxes, I was in the same boat. And basically, I consulted with our financial, uh, with, in that case, our our certified public accountant, who ran the numbers. And it, essentially, the bottom line is you want to figure out: are you going to save money or pay more money by filing, um, uh, jointly or separately? Now you have to file. Married. That's, that's obvious, but whether you file separately or jointly is still up to you. And it, I don't know. There's like, Alan, you can go into this a little bit more because I don't want to make this more confusing. But basically that's the math that you have to do is figure out as far as the exemptions go. And there's also the, you know, the marriage. Um, how does your income combine put you in a certain tax level, which might mean you are exposed to a higher tax bracket? There's all these things to consider. What would you say, Alan?
1: Totally agree. So really, we're trying to make the decision. Do we do married filing separately, married filing jointly? Um, And generally speaking, married filing jointly is going to be the way that you'll end up going. Married filing separately can make sense if one party has really, really, really high income and the other has really, really low income. The variable income usually isn't that big of a deal. Um, But you can do one of a couple things. So uh, Meg asked about a calculator. The IRS actually has an income tax calculator on their website. You go through, type in all your income sources, deductions, and all of that. And you can click, we're going to do married filing separately, see what the bottom line number is, and then married filing jointly, see what the bottom line number is. Uh, The trick to married filing separately is that there are uh, a lot of tax credits and tax deductions that you're not eligible for. If you file married filing separately, so the question is really, are you eligible for any of those credits and deductions? And every credit and deduction has a different set of rules, so we can't really go into it on this podcast. But um, if you go through a tax calculator, it's going to grab all of that information. Uh, but I will say, um, I think CPAs are worth their weight in gold. Uh, they're generally not that expensive. So paying them two, three, four hundred bucks, especially dollars $400, especially if you're, you, know, you have someone that's self-employed. So uh, there's a lot of deductions uh, that self-employed individuals get that uh, salary employees do not. I think it would be absolutely worth talking to someone, but you can do this online if you choose.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. I mean, in this case, you could just go in, like you said, for this a la carte question. You know, we need to know what to do. And uh but that's great to know the IRS has a calculator as well. What do you know about backdoor Roth IRAs, Alan? This is regarding our next question. And I, I did touch on this in the last episode, last Ask Farnoosh last week, which is, you know, uh somebody was saying I I make Basically, too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA. Is there any other way that I can get, um, investing in an, in an IRA of some sort, uh, that would be tax beneficial? And so we talked a little bit about backdoor IRAs, Roth IRAs. Um, but this person, Omid, who writes in, uh, he says, first of all, love your podcast. Just want to say, you know, that those are his words, not mine. He says, I <laughs> absolutely love your podcast. Thank you, Omid. And he says, thanks for educating and empowering the masses. He says, I've always been a good saver, but not a good investor. I recently learned about Roth IRAs. However, I make too much money to contribute directly. I've been reading a lot about backdoor Roth IRA conversions. He's not sure of the consequences. Is this just too good to be true? Now, first, Ex- to explain what a backdoor Roth IRA is, it's a way to contribute to a Roth IRA when your income exceeds the contribution limit. Um, because there is no income limit on contributing to a non-deductible traditional IRA, um, you can then – do you do that first and then you convert to a Roth IRA and that's kind of like the backdoor uh, – w- what the backdoor represents. Is it too good to be true? What should people be aware of as far as any maybe uh, – uh, drawbacks or complications. Yeah,
1: this is a this is a tough one. So there's, we've been doing these for years. So we've been doing this since I guess 2010. Has it was really when these became popular? Um, and so far, I'm not aware of anybody that has gotten in trouble for doing it. Uh, but we do have a couple of recommendations. So there's this concept that the IRS uh, has called the step transaction doctrine, which is a really fancy way of saying that they can basically look at all of the steps that you took. Com- and basically consolidate them in and say, does this follow the rules? So you contributed to a non-deductible IRA, you converted it to a, a Roth IRA using a backdoor Roth conversion. So therefore, we combine it all, and you contributed to a Roth IRA, which is not permissible. So from a from a purely legal standpoint. Um, I generally don't recommend these uh, unless you're working with a CPA or a financial advisor that can help you kind of navigate the process. But if you insist on doing it, uh, generally what we recommend is you make the IRA contribution in one year and do the Roth conversion in a separate year, so that hopefully the IRS would not look at that as a single transaction and combine them all, and they would look at okay, in 2015 you made this contribution, and then in 2017 you did the conversion later on. Um, so if you're going to do a Roth, a, a backdoor Roth conversion, at least try to separate the years in which you did the contribution and the conversion.
0: And then it also doesn't look like you were trying to like, basically capitalize on a loophole.
1: Right. Don't try to game the system <laughs> game because the, the system. IRS is notorious for going back and, and grabbing folks for doing this. So yeah. these are generally so small. I mean, honestly, a $5,000 Roth conversion is just small dollars to the IRS, but – um hey. you know, if you are in a position where you've been do, you've been contributing for years and years and years and you have a really big non-deductible IRA and then do a conversion, um, you know, it's 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 a question as to whether or not uh that's a good idea. So um anyway, it just kind of depends. So there's no right answer on this one. It's just a tough one.
0: Yeah. But I will say you mentioned like the IRS doesn't go after small money. They do. There's always that headline around tax season that's like tax representative IRS. Representative shows up at someone's door for like an 18th cent. <laughs> this
1: is true. You're absolutely uh, right. I mean, it just depends who shows up in their system as yeah. a red flag. So,
0: oh my gosh. All right. That's a good point. I didn't know to mention that. I didn't know that, you know, waiting the year is, uh, is the way to go. All right. So, Carl now is wondering about starting a blog or a website, developing a profitable online income stream. He says, How do I start from scratch? Whom can I use to work on, uh, help? being me, hold on a second, whom, I think he has a typo here in his question, so I'm gonna rephrase. This is basically, who can I uh, use or what resources can I use to help me build my business from scratch since I don't even know where to begin learning how to blog, build a website. There's just so many people out there with books and services that I don't know where to begin or how. Please let me know how to get going and who to contact as I trust your judgment. Well, thank you, Carl. I appreciate that you have this trust in me. And I would say, Don't worry. And and I want, I'm curious to hear what you think, Alan, too. I I would say, because we're both of us are part of the financial blogger community. Mm -hmm. I would say to Carl, don't worry so much about who's doing what. Um, and you know, if you're getting sold and marketed a bunch of products and courses, like just put those to the side right now. And just your first step is to figure out what interests you enough to write about consistently. Because one of the key ingredients to a successful blog. Uh, is consistency is to be able to interact with your audience, engage with your audience and share regularly. So why people come back for more and more and more and they know kind of what to expect. And similar to this podcast, you know, I knew that going five, at first it was seven days a week and I was crazy. Then I went down to five, but yet people still refer to me as that daily podcast. They know that I'm here pretty much every day and they can come to me almost every day. So they like that. And those, that you're building a very specific audience in that way. So first figure out what it is that interests you, that excites you enough where you wouldn't mind working through lunch. You wouldn't mind working and writing about your ideas through the wee hours of the evening. Uh, start with your passion. I know that's kind of cliche, but really start with what interests you. And then obviously you want to make sure that there's a market for that too. And And usually there is if you're willing to be really specific about what it is that you want to be. A voice in, you know, what you want to be a leader, a thought leader in, and then from there, I mean, there's a lot of people that I that I personally like to watch and and learn from, and one many of the people I've had on my podcast. So Ramit Sethi is really great as far as teaching people how to build an online business and um, how to, and his website is a great demonstration of also how to build a really compelling, rich website, how to write to your audience in a way that matters and is influential. Um I like uh Jeff Goins is great. G O I N S. Um Natalie Lucier is is someone again not names that you might know but L U S S I E R. She talks about how to build engagement on your website through your list and how to really write to your audience in a way that is compelling. And so I would say identify the people that you like and a subscribe to their websites to then learn kind of passively, actively through them as opposed to first, you know, putting out all this money to buy a course or to buy um, coaching. Just kind of learn through your experience and, and uh, observations. And that's why I would say you should start. How about you, Alan? What do you think are some good resources for him?
1: This is such a good question. And it's one that we're seeing more and more as more bloggers have been successful and have sold blogs for a lot of money and have created these great side income streams. But um, I would say there's a, there's a couple of pieces. First, I would, I would lay out just a little bit of caution and the caution being um, in my opinion. And this is only my opinion. uh, A blog is not a business. A blog is is a marketing tool for a business. And so ultimately blogs don't make money. You sell things using your blog. Now maybe you sell affiliate links or you sell e-courses or you sell, you know, a recipe book if you're a food blogger or you sell coaching, consulting, speaking, or maybe there's a bigger business behind it. As a financial planner, I may use blogging to drive ultimately the the, you know, readers to become clients of my financial planning practice. So the, the first thing I always recommend to folks that are looking to start a blog is how are you going to make money with it? What's going to be the business aspect? Um, and because if you get into this and you just write because you, you love it and that's awesome, but then you're going to have this massive community of people that just enjoy your free content and and then getting them to pay for something later on can be a bit of a challenge. So it's just something to think through. Mm -hmm. Um, another resource is a group like FinCon. So FinCon, uh, which is something, you know, Farnoosh, you and I are both involved in, and this is kind of a group, of bloggers that focus on money topics Uh, and that is obviously a very wide range of folks but uh, there are other organizations out there but FinCon is just a really good example of a place that you can come, it's an online community, they have a a private Facebook group that you can ask questions, you can learn, you can get opinions, you can come to the conference and just learn a ton of awesome information Um, and non-money bloggers come to FinCon so I've seen uh, people that have mattress companies or have uh, food blogs will come out but you know Try to tap into other communities that are doing similar work in kind of a similar area because it's a really great way to learn. But it's also good to see kind of what's out there and how you can differentiate yourself. What's going to make you different from all the other blogs that are kind of on the similar topic? What makes you know what is going to make people come read your content? Uh, So that's another uh, another idea in terms of just kind of getting involved to learn.
0: Yeah. Facebook is a huge resource as long as you know the organizations to tap into. And a lot of times they will lead you to more rich resources, whether it's a conference or a meetup. So I would say there's no need to really invest your dollars right now into anything. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Amanda writes in and she says that she was listening to a previous Ask Farnoosh earlier in November, and we were discussing the importance of term life insurance. And it started It raised a question for her. She says, you noted that it's important for parents. What are the most important steps for singles to be taking for insurance? She says, I have medical and dental insurance. I have renter's insurance. My work gives me short-term disability at 50% of my salary, long-term disability at 60% of my salary, and I get a life insurance amount that is 50% Fifty percent of my salary is that enough for someone unmarried and childless? Is there anything else I should do? Well, she sounds like she 's got a lot of her bases covered as far as health and dental and even disability i don 't know Alan. I feel as though if you 're single, if you don't have any financial dependence and it may it may not be children, but maybe you 're taking care of an elderly parent, you might be taking care of an of a nephew or a niece. Uh, there's really no immediate need for this robust life insurance policy, right? I mean, arguably, you don't need any life insurance if you're single, unmarried, childless, no financial dependence. Or am I wrong?
1: I completely agree. There's kind of two schools of thought out there when it comes to life insurance. And one school of thought is really pushed by the folks that are selling insurance. And then the other one is pushed by those of us that aren't selling insurance. Um, and I would say that, that my belief is that you use life insurance to protect someone in the event of your death financially, meaning that if someone is depending on your income to be coming in and they would be harmed by your death and loss of income, then you need to have life insurance. So to your point, that could be a parent that you're taking care of. It could be a child. It could be a significant other. Uh, Whatever it is, if there's something that Uh, If there's someone that would be affected by your death financially, then it makes sense to have insurance Uh, in based on this question and and what it sounds like you've got going on. I would say having, you know, the the insurance through work that's 50 percent of one year's salary uh, would be enough to cover things like funeral costs, uh, some burial expenses, things like that, that that do come up whenever a person passes away. But beyond that, I I don't see a need just based on the information that we have that Mm -hmm. you would need more life insurance. I, I agree with with what you're saying.
0: All right, Amanda, you're off the hook for now. (laughs) You're doing a great job, though, with other types of insurance. Agreed. And then finally, uh, Maggie says, do children inherit their parents' debt in the event of their passing? Now, I just did my estate plan a little while ago, and I believe I recall our estate planning attorney mentioning that our debt would basically go to our estate, Right. And, and depending on the debt, some debt is, uh you know, is um, no longer required to pay off in the event of your death. But you have to read the fine print. Some of the debt like credit card debt could go to your estate. And if you're leaving your estate to your children, then ipso facto, <laughs> they are sort of kind of not inheriting it, but they are now they have to deal with it.
1: Absolutely. So this is, again, to your point, it kind of depends on the the type of debt. So for instance, student loans that are backed by the government go away at death. No one will ever be responsible. It doesn't matter if it's a partner or a child, a parent, no one else is going to be responsible for paying off your government-backed student loans whenever you pass away. <clears throat> but a credit card debt could potentially be you know be paid by the estate. So what that means is... If you have a million dollars in net worth and you have a hundred thousand dollars in debt, basically nine hundred thousand dollars is going to pass to your heirs. For the most part, though, if you have no net worth but you do have this hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt, uh, generally speaking, that's going to go away, and it's they're not going to come after the children for money that they didn't get. So that's that's what Farnish means. Or whenever you're saying tax, you know, basically the estate gets taxed, not necessarily – or the not taxed. I'm sorry, the estate gets. Uh, becomes responsible for paying off the debt, not necessarily the children. So it kind of depends on the net worth and what's actually being passed. But uh, most debt ultimately does need to be paid. Uh, you know, a mortgage, they would require the sale of the home in order to pay off the mortgage or refinance the mortgage, things like that. So every debt is just a little bit different. Uh, but student loans are honestly the one that I hear uh, the most confusion about mm-hmm. uh, because people think that that someone else is going to get stuck with that. And that is not true unless they are uh, co-signed uh, Pride of loans,
0: right, right. Well, Alan, thank you so much. This is a lot of clarity for all of our listeners and myself as well. And tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. What's what's on your radar? What are you working on?
1: Great question. So, you know, the, really, my focus has been on the XY Planning Network, which you mentioned in the the intro. So, uh, we are basically a, a network of financial advisors that. Are serving Gen X and Gen Y clients, you know, historically the uh, financial planning profession has all of, has always been about helping rich people essentially spend and save their money uh, and invest their money, and so they were only helping folks that already had assets. And so we wanted to figure out how do we bring financial planning to younger clients that don't have assets yet, that do have student loan questions and mortgage questions, all the questions that we're answering on this podcast today. And so, you know, we we now have 175 advisory firms that are underneath our umbrella. Uh, we've been fighting a lot of battles in the advisory world because we were told that young people don't need financial planning or they don't want to pay for financial planning. And we're finally starting to see that break down and, and see more and more advisors kind of sh- shifting their focus. So uh, our focus has been how do we bring real financial planning is what I call it, but uh, fee only, which means no commissions, no insurance sales. Uh, you know, just a focus on financial planning to younger clients, and so uh, that that's kind of been my focus over the last few months, and will continue to be going forward. Is how do we just kind of continue to expand this network to bring financial planning to more clients?
0: Awesome, I love it, and I love that you don't have to also work with a planner. You know, you're not locked in. You know, you can go and ask your question and go away and come back and kind of use the, the resources on kind of an as needed basis and hopefully eventually on a more continual basis. But I know when you're just starting out, you just have these like really tough questions and you don't want to hunker down thousands of dollars or pay fees up the wazoo. You just kind of want to learn slowly but steadily. And, um, and I see that really fitting a need here. So thanks for the great work that you're doing and happy holidays to you and your family.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You as well.
0: Thanks again to my guest, Alan Moore of XY Planning Network. Check out xyplanningnetwork.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and for many of you for sending in your questions. As always, if you'd like to reach me, it's really easy. Just hop over to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. Thanks again. Hope your day and weekend is so money.